Amen. My name is Russell Moore. I'm thrilled to be here at the Austin Stone with so many people that I love and respect and such an encouraging thing to be at this church with whom I have so much affection and, and so glad to see the way the Spirit is working to build the universal body of Christ from this place. Call our attention to Ephesians chapter 5. I'd like for us to read starting with verse 15 and on down through verse 33. Ephesians 5, 15 through 33. These words were breathed out by the Holy Spirit of Christ, which means they come to us with the exact same authority as if our Lord Jesus were standing here verbally speaking these words. And when Jesus speaks, whether it's to say, let there be light or storm be still, or your name is Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, things happen and they continue to happen. And so let's stand beneath the word of Christ as he says this to us through the Apostle Paul. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Holy Father, we pray right now as we gather around your word that you would speak to us by your spirit. Pray, Father, that we would recognize that we're in an arena of spiritual warfare, that there are beings about us that would seek to destroy us, that would seek to accuse us, that would seek to condemn us. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your gospel, that we would so cling to Christ and so cling to the mystery of the word that you've given to us, that we would be able to put to death all of those voices around us that would do those things. And Father, instead that we would come alive to the word that you are speaking in the Lord Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Give us rest and give us power by your word and conform us to Christ that we might be in his image. And we ask this in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Typically, when Christians are looking for marriage counsel, they don't tend to go to Chris Rock for it. 
But a couple of months ago, the comedian gave an interview talking about issues of relationships between men and women that I think the church could actually learn a lot from. He was being asked how his life had changed and particularly how his comedy had changed from the days when he was a single man to now that he's married with children and living out a more conventional kind of middle-aged life. And he said, well, I think that I'm actually able to connect with audiences better than I could back when I was single, including to single men and women, because I feel like, he said, I know women better uh, than I ever did before. He said, and there's something about marriage that causes you to know one another in a way that you never did before. He said, a, a guy who has a girlfriend doesn't have the same sort of experience with understanding what a woman is like from a man who has a wife. He said, when you are dating or in some kind of a relationship with one another, you're always kind of auditioning for the other person. You're always kind of campaigning for office because there's always the possibility of this ending. He said, but the difference between your girlfriend and your wife is the difference between an elected official and the Supreme Court. When you're married, she's the Supreme Court and she says whatever she wants. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. Coming into the marriage union so changes reality around you that it is very similar to what it would be like as an American citizen when the Supreme Court does something. You don't have the same sort of recourse that you do when somebody you voted into office does something. You have to say, well, this is the Supreme Court and we either walk away from our country and walk away from our Constitution or we live with it. But I wish that Chris Rock were actually really right about that. There was a time in Western culture when that was the case. You spent that time getting to know the other person and wondering, are we going to be able to live together as man and wife? Are we going to be able to have a good marriage? Can I wake up listening to his voice every morning? Can I wake up seeing her every morning? Are we going to be able to make a life together? But then once the marriage took place, there was a sense of freedom from all that evaluation. Now we're going to live together. We have, we're, we're now married, and so we're just going to make do with those things that irritate us, and we're going to work together to make a life. But often that's not what happens. The auditioning continues to go on throughout all of life when marriage becomes so easily ripped apart and so easily split apart that often even people who are married to one another still have those nuclear options in their minds of if this gets to a particular point, a particular red line, we can always walk away. And when that is in the back of the mind, the permanence of that marriage is in jeopardy. But he's also right, Chris Rock is also right, that there is something about the other sex that is mysterious. There's something about a woman that is mysterious in the life of a man, 
Something about a man that is mysterious in the life of a woman. And part of what marriage does is to bring those two very different realities together in one as you spend an entire life getting to know what it means to serve and to live with the other. He's right about that. And in that, he hits at something, maybe unintentionally, that is right at the core of what the Scripture is saying in this passage that the Apostle Paul writes to a church at Ephesus. It's a church that understands something about the tensions between men and women and something about the mystery of human sexuality because it's a church that lives in a seaport city that is built around goddess worship. There's a temple there to the goddess Artemis, who's the goddess of fertility and the goddess of of, uh, power, the goddess of of, uh, money and of wealth and of success. And this entire community is built around worshiping this goddess and worshiping this being and worshiping ultimately the very power of human sexuality. In the middle of that city and in that place, Paul writes a letter where he talks about, in the passage that we just read, what it means to live together as the body of Christ, what it means to live together as a congregation, to recognize that you're living in evil times, no matter what time you live in after the fall, to recognize that there is a sense in which there is spiritual warfare going on around you all of the time that must be discerned a sense in which as the body of Christ we sing to one another, we encourage one another, we admonish one another, we teach one another. And then he talks about particularly what that means to live as men, what it means to live as women, and what it means for the body of Christ to recognize the mystery of marriage. Now, one of the problems that we have with passages like Ephesians chapter 5 in our contemporary Christian circles, is that we assume that Ephesians 5 is a passage of Scripture for married people, period. This is a Scripture speaking to married people as to how to have a godly marriage. We also assume that this is the practical, applicational part of Ephesians as opposed to those other parts that are deep and doctrinal. Neither of those two things are the case. The Apostle Paul isn't having a breakout session in the Ephesian church for married couples. This is written to the entire body of Christ. And why is that the case? It's because there is no person, regardless of how single and for how long, who is abstracted and unaffected by marriage and human sexuality. Every human person comes into existence because of the dynamic between a man and a woman, and every human person is living out a life, whether married or not, in the tension and dynamic between what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Moreover, every member of the body of Christ is responsible for holding accountable everybody else within the body of Christ, including those marriages. So Ephesians 5 is speaking to that single 15-year-old boy and speaking to that 87-year-old widow 
as much as it is speaking to the newly married couple within the congregation. It's to the whole body of Christ. But also, sometimes we're confused when we read through the Bible with the way that we have these chapter divisions and verse divisions, which are very helpful. I'm able to say, let's look in the Bible at Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 15, and everybody who has any familiarity with the Bible knows how to get there. It's a shorthand way of getting there. But the problem is it can give us an artificial sense of these being separate episodes, that they're, they're taken out of context from the rest of what's being given here, as though the Apostle Paul were giving a, a series of installments. Ephesians 1, predestination and election. Ephesians 2, unity of Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 4, spiritual gifts. Ephesians 5, marriage tips. Ephesians 6, parenting and spiritual warfare. That's not what's happening here. This is one letter that is being read by torchlight in this gathering of believers all as a whole with one common point that the apostle is making, which is the mystery that was not revealed before that now has been revealed. The mystery of Christ that makes sense of everything. He says in Ephesians 1 that what God is doing is he is summing up everything in Christ. He says you can understand why we have galaxies and waterfalls and antelopes and you because of what God is doing in Jesus Christ in order to give him an inheritance of the universe. He says in Ephesians 3, you can understand why God is gathering together a church at Ephesus or at Austin. It is not simply to pool everybody together to give them worship experiences. It is instead as a sign of Jesus' rule and Jesus' reign to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And now, as he's continuing this argument, he says, I want to explain to you why being a man, being a woman, the union between a man and a woman is so critically important. He is not here saying that Christ and the church is an illustration of marriage. Paul is not in prison writing this letter to this church saying, be a good husband, be a good wife, have a good marriage, because that's kind of like, I don't know, the sun and the moon, oh, that doesn't work. The dew and the rain, oh, that doesn't work. Uh, Christ in the church. No, it's the opposite. He is saying that Christ and the church, that is the original and marriages and the differentiation between man and woman, all of that points you back to the gospel. There is a reason why human beings don't subdivide like amoeba. There is a reason why the first question that comes to mind when somebody is expecting a baby is, is it a boy or is it a girl? There's a reason why God has done it this way and the reason, Paul says, is to show us an embedded picture of the gospel, which is why this matters to everyone. It's the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel. Notice what Paul does. 
He starts here by talking about the mystery of Christ and womanhood, what it means to be a woman. He says, Christians, submit yourselves to one another. And then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Now, that's one of those passages that when you read it, even in a gathering of committed Christians, there's a sense in which some people in the room kind of hold their breath and start shifting around in the chair because the language there seems kind of demeaning and seems kind of harsh. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, part of the reason that that makes us so uncomfortable is sin. No one likes to submit to anyone in our fallen state. But another reason why it makes us uncomfortable is because we don't understand what the Scripture is saying here. When Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, that is not an anti-woman statement. That is a message of radical female empowerment. On the one hand, because Paul is writing this and speaking to women as joint heirs with Christ and as members of the body of Christ in an era of a very pagan form of patriarchy in which women were often viewed as simply the extensions or the property of their husbands. Paul does not say, husbands, see to it that your wives are submitting. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. But also, because when Paul says this, what he is doing is not only calling for submission, to follow the leadership of a husband, but he is also ending and limiting submission. One of the major problems that we have, even among Christian women, our sisters in Christ, it is not that they are not submissive enough. It is that too many of you are too submissive. That's what's happening in the larger culture outside of us is a sense in which women are submitting themselves to men. In virtually every society, there is a certain kind of predatory patriarchy that believes that a woman is to be judged by her sexual attractiveness and availability to men. You can see that in everything from the pornography industry to roadside restaurants that hire waitresses based upon physical characteristics for the entertainment and exploitation of men. The scripture never calls on women to submit to men. Never does the Bible call for women generally to submit to men generally. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. A woman who submits herself to her own husband or a woman who submits herself co covenants with God to submit only to her own husband who may be yet future is a woman who is refusing to submit to men in general. She refuses to live her life based upon what men in general think beauty is. 
She refuses to live her life defining herself by men to whom she is not covenantally accountable. She holds herself back. She is skeptical of every other claim of leadership except for the one that unites himself with her in a lifelong permanent covenant. This is not girlfriends submit yourselves to your boyfriends. This is not women submit yourselves to your partners. This is not females submit yourselves to males. This is wives submit yourselves to your own husbands. And why is that the case? Because the woman has been created from the very beginning picturing God's covenant purposes in a people and in a church who follows willingly after her husband, Christ, but does not follow after Baal, does not follow after any other bridegroom or any other voice, submits herself only and simply to him. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Too many, too many, in too many situations in our culture and even within the church, we have women who are intimidated and bullied by the male gaze and by the male expectation in a way that the scripture says is not picturing the union between Christ and the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then he turns and talks about the mystery of Christ as it relates to manhood. He says, because the husband is the head of the wife. Now that also causes a good deal of discomfort. And that's because when most of us hear head, we think in corporate terms here in terms of a a CEO over a company. And so we assume that what submission and headship are about is woman, get me my chips. Or in a particularly sanctified home, blessed wife, please get me my chips and then let's pray. That's not what he's saying here. That, That is not what this is about. It's actually the opposite of what this is about. It is not about self-interest and privilege and priority. He says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And then he goes on to define that headship in terms of the cross, in terms of a pouring out of oneself. He says Christ washes his church with pure water in order to present her to the Father, and Christ pours himself out in death even to the point of a cross. That is what headship is about. Now, that means leadership. That means a weight of responsibility is coming upon him, but it is not a leadership for the gratification of self. It is a leadership that says what is in the best interest of this woman, of these children that God has given to me, and how do I bear the cross on my own back to get us there? That takes leadership, and passivity cannot do that. Because when Jesus himself 
does the things that Paul talks about here. The church initially doesn't want to follow him. He washes his church with pure water in that upper room right before his crucifixion. And when he comes in and kneels down in order to wash the grime and the mud and the dung off of the feet of his disciples, Peter, speaking for the rest of them, doesn't think that's dignified enough. It embarrasses him to see his king and his Lord down there ready to do that. And he says, never are you going to wash my feet. How does Jesus respond? (sighs) Try to do something nice for somebody. Nor does he grab the feet of his disciples and wash them in some act of raw sovereignty. What does Jesus do? He teaches and disciples his church. My washing you means that you are identifying yourself with me. He instructs and he leads and he teaches and he disciples. When Jesus is headed toward the cross, toward this giving his life up for her that Paul talks about in verses 25 and 26, the church doesn't want to go. Peter, again, speaking for the rest of the disciples, says, we're never going to let anybody arrest you. We're never going to let anybody take you to a cross. I'll cut off the ear of anybody who tries to come and take you over to the cross. What does Jesus do? He teaches, he instructs, he disciples, he sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem, not for his own interest, but for the interest of his bride. That is what male headship is about. Not about bossing and domineering and finding prerogative and finding privilege, but seeking out the best interest and pouring yourself into it. That doesn't start with the marriage vows. There are many of you in this room who are single men. Some of you in this room... Are going, God is calling you to a life of chastity to give yourself over to building up the church. Many of you, God is going to call to be married and is going to put a woman in your life as a wife and perhaps children into your family later on. Male headship does not start when you meet her. It doesn't start when you take the vows. It doesn't start when you get back from the honeymoon. It starts when you start to build in your own life through the power of the Holy Spirit those practices and habits which crucify self-interest in order to be the kind of man who can pour yourself out in cross-bearing leadership. The single young man who crucifies his flesh by keeping himself away from the digital prostitution of internet pornography is fighting for his bride and for his marriage even if he does not even know what she looks like or what her name is yet. The man who gives himself over to the study of the scriptures and to the cultivation of a life of prayer and humility before God is preparing himself to lead in the fullness of time, if God wills, a family and a household and a bride. That is male headship. That is sacrificial giving out of self. 
And then once that man is placed in a household and into a family, the kind of headship that Paul is talking about here is one that is so organically united with his bride that there isn't this sense of division that we often feel. What's, what's in my interest and what's in her interest? If you're one flesh, you're one flesh. He says no one hates his own flesh but feeds himself and cares for himself. We give out awards for all sorts of things. We congratulate people for all sorts of acts of heroism. We might call somebody out and say, we need to congratulate this guy. He saved a family from a burning building. We need to congratulate this guy. He went into a a war zone and rescued a whole group of people. But we would never stand up and say, everybody, I want to tell you how fantastic Chad Kinser is. Chad's body signaled to him through his nervous system that it was in need of nutrients. And as his stomach started to contract, Chad was so diligent, he had such compassion upon that stomach, and he he immediately read what what was taking place, that he went and found some nutrient-bearing substances. He put it into his own mouth like a mother bird and used his teeth to grind it up and then he sent it down through and had enzymes come in and start breaking that down and sending it through the bloodstream. What a hero. We would say he was hungry and he ate a hamburger. He was dirty, he took a shower. That's what you do. He says, when you care for your own flesh... You're not doing anything heroic. You're caring for your own body as Jesus does for his church. And when a man gives himself over for the interest of his wife, when he gives himself over and sacrifices his own interest for his wife, he is simply caring for his own flesh, his own interests, his own body. That's what headship is. You don't domineer your body. You don't tyrannize your body. You care for and sustain your own body. I had a guy come see me one time. He said, I need you to give me some advice in my marriage because I'm married to a really lazy woman and I'm getting tired of it. I said, well, how is she, how is she lazy? He said, well, every Sunday night she starts crying because she doesn't want to go to work the next day. He said, I'm in graduate school. I'm studying full-time. She works full-time, 50, 60 hours a week. And she kind of is supporting us uh, while I'm in graduate school. And uh, she just hates going to work. I said, well, maybe she hates her job. He said, no, it's not that because she cried about her last job before and she hated the job before that too. This has been an ongoing thing. It doesn't matter what the job is. I said, well, how long have you been married? About eight years, eight and a half years. Maybe, I said, she wants to be a mom and she doesn't see any leadership from you as to how she's going to get there. He said, no, that's not it. Because we made an agreement early on that we were going to wait and not even think about children until I had made it through all my graduate programs and then we were established somewhere and I'd gotten my career under control and everything was the way it needs to be. I said, well, why don't you just humor me? Go home and ask her if that's what it is. He came back the next day. 
and looked at me like I was an Old Testament prophet or a <laughs> New Age psychic or something. He said, I, I went home and asked her, and she started crying, and she said, that's exactly it, that she really wants to be a mom, and she just sees nothing in front of us but ongoing graduate school, and she feels like she's the one that has to bear the whole weight of our family economically and in terms of leadership, and she didn't want to bring it up to me because she didn't want to burden me with that, but that's what's going on in her life. I said, well, if I were you, I would go home and say, you know what? What you are wanting and longing for is a good and godly thing, and I have a plan to get us there. He said, well, I don't have a plan to get us there. <laughs> I said, well, that's step B. You come up with a plan. But that's resting upon you to map that through. And you say to her, we're going to see to it that we are parents of children. He said, well, how do I do that? I said, well, do you want me to show you with modeling clay? Or... I said, people have been doing this for, for a long time. <laughs> he went away skeptical, but some months later, he walked into my office in front of all of my staff assembled there. He said, I just wanted to come by and say, my wife is pregnant and Dr. Moore is the reason why. <laughs> now, in this guy's particular circumstance... The issue here is that he really wanted this problem to be resolved by his wife's forbearance with his particular situation, when in reality, what God has called the men within the household to do is to lead, not to lead by giving out orders and instructions that help prop up the way that they want to go, but to lead by discerning what is in her best interest. How can I bless her? How can I serve her? How can I lead our family? And pouring myself out as I do that. That's what real leadership is. It's the kind of leadership that points to the kingship of Christ, which is not about prerogative, not about privilege, but about servanthood, sacrifice. And then notice finally, Paul shows us here the mystery of Christ in that union, that one flesh union. He says the husband pours himself out as Christ does in sacrifice. He nourishes and cherishes his own flesh just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. And then he sums it up with a really interesting phrase. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Everyone in the room would have recognized this from the book of Genesis and everyone in every place and in every culture would have recognized the, the meaning of that in some way. There is something about the sexual drive and the sexual urge that is universal and is more powerful than just an act of the will. There are all sorts of civilizations in human history that have died out because of starvation, because of disease, because of war. But there is no civilization in the history of humanity that has ever died out because people forgot to have sex or were too uneducated to figure out how to have sex. That's not the case because you don't wake up one morning and say, you know, we really do need to keep this human race going. 
uh, I really need to find somebody with whom I can propagate my genes. That's not what happens. There's this sense of a mysterious sort of awakening that makes you feel like you are going crazy because there is a powerful drive that God has embedded for the two to become one. And when the man takes the woman as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and when the woman takes the man as bone of her bone and flesh of her flesh, when they become one flesh committed and in covenant with one another, Paul says this is a picture of the gospel itself. That's why this is so critically important. This is why your pornography addiction is a problem. It is not just the awful consequences that are happening to you psychologically. It is not just the exploitation of the trafficked people that are being used in order to feed this, although all of those things are true. It is because in this there is another gospel being proclaimed. That's the reason why sex outside of the marital union is such an issue in Scripture. It is not simply because that has consequences for people, although it does. It is because there is something happening there spiritually that is communicating a gospel of a Christ who uses his church in order to satisfy himself rather than giving himself in a permanent covenant to his church. That's the reason why the divorce culture is so devastating. It is not only because this hurts women and hurts children, although it does, it's because God has embedded pictures all around us of the union of Christ and his church. These are living, breathing gospel tracts that we are seeing ripped apart consistently of a picture of a Christ who walks away from his church, of a church who walks away from her Christ, and that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says the mystery that is seen in what it means to be a man, the mystery that is seen in what it means to be a woman, the mystery that is seen in that union of the two together is about the gospel itself. There are some of you who have lived through some awful things. Some of you come from homes where a mom or a dad walked away. Some of you grew up in homes that were unsafe or abusive. Some of you have had men or women in your life who have hurt you deeply. Some of you have given yourself over submissively to people who have used you. Some of you are in marriages right now where you're maintaining a kind of cold war with one another. Some of you are in marriages where you're living as roommates, not even giving yourself over to the work of cultivating sexual joy and union in that marriage with your jobs and your kids and everything else that's going on. These issues are gospel issues. If you understand the gospel of a Christ who says to you, I love you not because of what you do for me. I love you not as a transaction, 
but I have poured myself out with my own blood and I will never, 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 never leave you. That changes the way you see what it means to be a man. It changes the way you see what it means to be a woman. And it changes the way that you see marriage, regardless of whether or not you are married. And as we see those pictures, as frail and as imperfect as they are, of that man who gives himself over to a woman with Alzheimer's disease who doesn't even remember his name, as he brushes her hair and sings to her her favorite songs, that doesn't show up in the hormonal adolescent view of love that is so omnipresent in contemporary culture. But that is cross-bearing, self-sacrificial love that points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we see that, then we see, Paul says here, a mystery that points us not just back to the beginning of what we were created to be, but it points us to the end. When the scripture says that the church comes down from heaven adorned as a bride for her husband. That church isn't abandoned. That church isn't abused. That church isn't used. That church is received with joy and with life and with blessedness. That's the mystery of Christ in the church. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? There may be some of you in this room who don't know what it is to be pursued by a bridegroom who loves you to the point of shedding his own blood. Maybe some of you who are here and you've, you have so much weighing on your consciences, maybe through sexual immorality, maybe through breaking up a, a family, Maybe in some other way that your conscience is speaking against you, your conscience is accusing you. The voice of the gospel does not call you to clean yourself up. The gospel calls you to look and believe. In a God who took on flesh for you, in a Jesus Christ who lived a life for you, in a Jesus Christ who shed his blood for you, in a Jesus Christ who is alive today for you through his resurrection from the dead and who has sends people and has sent someone here today to tell you that he calls you to come to him. Come to him. There are others of you in this room who you know Christ, you've embraced the gospel, but for some of you in this room, life is very hard. Some of you in this room have been through divorce or you've been through sexual immorality or you've been through a marriage that fell apart or an engagement that fell apart. Some of you are wanting to be married and you're not seeing how God is answering that. Some of you are crying out for children and you're not seeing how God is answering that. Some of you are being tempted in all sorts of ways and, and you're not sure how to live a life of chastity. I call you to hear and receive the gospel that not only saved you but empowers you to live out that mystery in your life right now. Father, I pray right now for those in this room who are strangers to your grace. If there is anyone 
who is still outside of that covenant blood of Jesus Christ and that covenant life of Jesus Christ, would you let that person know? Would you speak within the heart that word of invitation, come to me? And Father, I pray for those in this room whose marriages are weak or falling apart or those who are broken sexually or maritally or those who are trying to live out a life as a godly man or a godly woman. Father, would you give power? Would you give resources? Would you give spirit? And would you enable us to do whatever it is that you're calling us to do? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.